Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to J.L. Anderson about his new book, Capitals Pigs, Pigs, Pork, and Power in America, published in 2019 by West Virginia University Press. Joe Anderson is Associate Dean of Research, Scholarship, and Community Engagement and a History Professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Dr. Anderson teaches a variety of courses from food and diet to the American Civil War and Reconstruction. Joe's professional experience as a museum educator and administrator has led to a continuing interest in public history, and his recent projects have focused on the history of rural America, particularly as it relates to technology and the environment in the mid-continent. Joe is the past president of the Agricultural History Society and a member of the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada. Capitalist Pigs brings together Joe's interest in food, farming, social history, environment, and technology. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carrie. It is great to join you today. Awesome. As I learned from your bio, you started your career in museums um, as an educator and administrator. What kind of work were you doing then, and and how did that move you into academia? That is one of the fun, challenging parts of my life that I, I look back on with wonderment that I survived. Uh, I was in living history programming. So I worked at an agricultural museum where we replicated the daily lives of people from uh, from the past in uh, Iowa context. So this included everything from hoeing the corn to milking the cows to working with the oxen, choring all the livestock. And that was a great introduction to uh, the hows and whys of food and diet, uh, food and fiber production. Uh, but for a young person, it was absolutely thrilling to be hands-on with those things that were, were pretty remote for, for my peers at that time. Yeah. So how did you move from there into academia? I did museum work for about 10 years, and that included the frontline interpretation work, uh, That included working with formal education programs. And over the course of those years, I settled into an administrative role, which I did for about seven years. And as much as I loved that work, at some point I decided uh, it was a lot about time cards and budgets and things like that. And I was really missing a lot of the history. Uh, So that's when I went back to graduate school and did a PhD at Iowa State University and was lucky enough to land a job teaching where I could bring all those interests together. Uh, So it was a case, uh, a perfect storm, if you will, where living history background and museum work helped me get the job. Uh, So I get to teach public history. And I also get to teach some research interests as well as things at being at a small small university. I teach very broadly. So uh, that museum work that started 
just on a on an interest as a 20-year-old, really there's a pretty straight line through where I am right now teaching about pigs, about power, about uh, hog production, about diet. Uh, and who who knew when you're 20 years old uh, that there would actually be some of those connections? Uh, I certainly didn't see it coming. Oh, for sure. <laughs> well, I love a good single ingredient cultural history of food. It's one of my favorite bedtime readings, um, as well as kind of scholarly work. Um, so what led you to focus on pigs specifically? Is there something that we learn about American history or culture by focusing on pigs and pork? I, I think we absolutely do. Uh, it, again, came from a personal interest when I was interacting with those pigs in the museum setting. I marveled at their intelligence. I marveled at their ability to interact with people and each other. Uh, not to say that other animals weren't interesting, but the pigs were especially so. Uh, and you'll find this if you, ever, if you ever try and control the behavior of swine. Uh, they demonstrate incredible tenacity. Uh, they want to be where they want to be. And again, that's true for a lot of animals. but Pigs have a lot of things in their toolkit uh, that help them survive. And so I was interested in that personally and watching them and interacting with them. And as I was working on my first book, which was about agriculture in the mid-continent, specifically Iowa, I just kept coming across so many sources that I couldn't deal with in the course of that project. So my, my first project was kind of bounded temporally. Uh, by the end of World War II, which got a lot of transformations uh, into high gear. And then I ceased the study around the early 1970s when a lot of those transformations uh, had become pretty firmly embedded. But there were so many things that I couldn't deal with in that study that really, to me, felt like they warranted revisiting. And as, as you mentioned, what can we learn about us, about the United States, about our culture? Uh, one of the things that really impressed me was the extent to which we've gone in agriculture and in food production to remake that animal. And I, ultimately, I described it as we're kind of inscribing our desires for ourselves onto the backs of these animals. So I, I think that really opens a door for not only understanding some things about pigs, the study is not necessarily a pig's eye view of the world, but really what we're learning about people by studying our interactions with those animals. Yeah, that's well said. And you you made that really convincing argument in the introduction about that uh, the desires that we map onto pigs, uh, giving them the kind of life that we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> or feared? I'm not sure. <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, to put it very crudely, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, Euro-American settlers uh, lived lives that were very different than ours. Not only were they spending most of their time out of doors, uh, they were experiencing incredible seasonality in their diet. Uh, they tended to die across the lifespan, if that makes sense. Uh, and to explain that today, we cluster, our, our deaths cluster around the teenage years. Uh, and then there's a long stretch where it's kind of odd or exceptional 
if if someone dies in their 30s or 40s. Um, and then obviously surging towards the the days of heart attacks and uh, and uh, old age related diseases. But three or four hundred years ago, uh, lots of thirty year olds and forty year olds died due to secondary infections. Uh, and animals were like that too. Uh, so this is a case where we have had kind of a mirrored experience that today we spend a lot of our time indoors. Today, we don't have the seasonality in diet that people did 300 years ago. Uh, today, we often have climate-controlled environments. Today, we have a regime of pharmaceuticals at our disposal that we use for health. And we've done the same thing with livestock. And to me, that, that's kind of an interesting opening point to see how we, how we got there. Yeah, and you cover a lot of chronology from like the Columbian Exchange to the present. Um, so let's maybe start with that earliest information. So how and when and where do pigs arrive in North America? Well, put simply, they, they arrive, uh, if not in the shadows of those settlers, they arrive with them in lockstep. Uh, so uh, the Spaniards with early settlements along the South Atlantic coast, along the Gulf Coast, uh, introduce those animals. The English do it in the Chesapeake. The uh, Swedes do it in what is now Delaware. Uh, we see it with the Dutch um, in uh, modern-day New York. So just about everywhere Europeans put down any sort of settlement, whether it be transient or, or long-term, uh, those animals are companions, and they are with them. And the great hopes for those European powers is that these colonies and settlements would become self-sufficient. A lot of that was pegged on uh, swine because they are so opportunistic. And as omnivores, they can thrive on a beach and in a canebrake and in a forest and in the savanna. Uh, so there are lots and lots of ways in which pigs can thrive very easily, take care of themselves and their young in ways that uh, a great contrast is with sheep. Uh, sheep have a much tougher time uh, than pigs do. And so they became an ideal colonizer animal that provided not all, but significant portions of the foodstuffs, the protein uh, for those early settlers. So how did those early settlers um, and the pigs that they brought with them affect Native American life? Yeah, this is uh, a colossal story and one that goes on for many, many decades. When the Europeans uh, bring those animals, they're all disruptive to indigenous life and culture. So uh, the pigs have an especially notorious reputation because uh, they will disrupt a lot of the habitat and ecosystem that indigenous people were using for their sustenance. So uh, everything from the actual cultivated crops that Native Americans had to many of the other species that they relied on uh, that were non-domesticated and very critically driving out the game that was the primary protein source for Native Americans. Uh, 
this is a case where most Native American groups in North America do not have domesticated livestock. So they're relying on, uh, in particular, deer is super, uh, super popular along the Atlantic coast. And those hogs drive out a lot of that game. And that's a crisis for uh, First Nations people. So we see all sorts of disputes that arise around that conflict between livestock, especially hogs, and European conflicts and, and European neighbors. Yeah, so the, the chapters are not exactly divided chronologically, and that was kind of uh, something that surprised me, but also I found it to be really effective. Um, so rather than telling all of the story beginning to end, you kind of focus each chapter on one aspect of that story and cover the colonial era to almost the present um, in each one of those. Uh, the first chapter, Making American Geography, which I love as a title. My apologies uh, <laughs> to no, readers it. everywhere. <laughs> it describes the the movement of hog centers over time. And since my research is in Southern cookbooks, uh, naturally, I think of the South as the port capital kind of beginning of the sentence into the sentence. Um, but that hasn't always been the case. And port consumption is not specific to one region either. So w- describe some of that movement and, and what accounts for that movement over time. Uh, this is one of the most revelatory parts of the story for me. Uh, we have told the story of the South as being a region of corn and pork, and it's true, but it's true with a lot of uh, with a pretty big asterisk on it that um, those European settlers, in particular the English, they brought over a all their assumptions about what a proper diet was and should be, and for elite English. Uh, men and women, that included a variety of meats. So people who tended to be at the top of the socioeconomic uh, hierarchy or pyramid tended to eat broadly across multiple species, uh, both wild game, uh, fish, domestic livestock. And that's really what they wanted when they came to the Americas. What happened uh, in multiple contexts is after a generation or so, they were able to replicate a lot of that variety for the elites. Uh, After two or three generations, they were eating much like the, much like the English back in the home islands, but that wasn't the case for everyone. And in particular, the majority of uh, those colonists and settlers Uh, both free and later enslaved. We should make the distinction between the free and varying shades of unfree, which included indentured servants and uh, slaves. Those people ate a much, uh, much more constricted diet. And that included beef. It would include some mutton, uh, but much more pork and much more wild game. And there are a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, They simply did not have the time and resources to actually do the kind of work required to have access to cattle. Cattle are more sensitive. Uh, They're harder to keep in the wintertime. And even in southern climates, which are much more temperate, there's still severe weather in the south, as you know. Uh, And so those cattle, the sheep are much more sensitive. Uh, to those extremes, and the hogs can actually 
thrive much better. So it became the um, the kind of go-to working man's food. And there's an interesting connection with the old world there. And that is that for those elite Englishmen, they also saw pork as being ideally suited to working people. That was an interesting continuity between their assumptions about farm laborers and, and farm workers in general, that pork is good for them. It is a rich food, a hot food with lots of fat. And the, uh, the elite said, that's good for working people. And of course, in a way, they're right. Uh, people who are doing a lot of physical labor burn those calories much faster. They need a lot of protein to rebuild that muscle. And that was certainly present in pork. So uh, it's a case where the replicated foodways of the old world, of the new world, are, uh, are seen kind of filling out in the South. But there are many, many exceptions to that. And, and I'm happy to talk about how, how, that, uh, how that goes down. But I just want to stop for a second to see if I'm, uh, if I'm getting off the rails here, Carrie. No, you're doing great. Um, uh, and it's interesting to me that, you know, as a working class food, working class people are all over the United States, right? It's not a regionally specific. Um, and so if the food is more associated with class than a particular region, that makes some sense. That is exactly the case. So uh, archaeological investigations on Long Island, New York, archaeological investigations in Boston, Massachusetts, they show uh, that people were eating broadly, but depending on social class, pork tended to show up more often amongst working people's uh, diet than it did amongst elites. And there were some cases where, as I mentioned, that there's some exceptions to it. Or for certain groups, pork was a constant. Uh, so the military frequently was a case where you're eating far more pork than you do other other protein sources. For sub subgroups like miners and uh, workers who are on the southern plantations that work in the iron industry, and also in Pennsylvania in the iron industry. Uh, those places also tend to reflect a great deal of pork. That's pretty fascinating. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say there's there's one other, one other caution to the pork story, however, mm -hmm. and that is that a lot of the pork that's raised north and south is not raised for domestic consumption. Mm, yeah. So this is the... This is kind of the asterisk or the caution flag that we put on the, the stories that we tell about Southern food and also working people's food, that we've got scads of hogs across the continent in the 17th and 18th centuries, and, and the 19th century as well. Many of those hogs that are raised are raised to be killed and processed for the international trade. Mm. And I'm not the only author who's talked about this, but I try and highlight the fact that when people commented on the Southern landscape, they commented on the 18th century landscape, they were aware of this surging presence of hogs, not always visible, but you could always see their effects everywhere. Uh, what they didn't fully realize, well, some of them realized it, that 
a lot of those animals were bound for supply of the Royal Navy. And a lot of those animals were being raised to supply the sugar plantations of the Caribbean. So the story that's often told is about, gosh, there's a lot of evidence that people ate pork. And look at how many hogs there are on the land. But many of those animals um, were not destined for uh, the the local market. Many of them were part of a greater imperial project that involved commodity production like sugar and cocoa and tea and all those other things and the the navy that was required to keep that uh keep that empire if you will afloat pardon the pun <laughs> that's good uh, the the next chapter kind of describes the the history of keeping pigs from free range forest creatures um, to the pins later on, to the sort of modern concrete and all of these laws and ordinances and legal conflicts uh, that motivate these changes. So, so maybe describe that story a little bit in outline. How has hog husbandry changed over time? That's a great question for those settlers who came in the, in the colonial period and many after. The United States, the British colonies... They had lots of space, and I put a put a caution with that, that it was, of course, occupied space by First Nations people, but they didn't have a lot of labor. And so hogs were well-suited to being uh, maintained with very little care. So the, the story of hog husbandry has a, a nice parallel with the European experience in which the drovers would, in Europe, take these animals out in the fall, let them fatten on the mast, and then bring them back in the winter for uh, butcher and for breeding. The story in the Americas was similar. Those animals could be out. They might have a drover, they might not, but those animals could take care of themselves on all of the the nuts that were falling from the tree, the mast or, or panage uh, as the as it was called in Europe, and they were able to thrive. What happened, though, as population density increased, as many of those uh, nut-bearing trees were threatened, not only by over-harvesting for uh, naval stores and construction and charcoal manufacture, uh, they're also threatened by the animals themselves that tend to do some damage to those trees if they're not uh, husbanded carefully. Uh, they started to see a lot of pressure on that resource, and so that's the case. That that's the case where people said we have to pay a little more attention to these pigs. You see that discourse in the 1700s, uh, especially in places like Pennsylvania and New York uh, and Massachusetts, where they start to talk about ways in which they can provide supplemental feed, ways in which they can tie those animals a little more closely to the farmstead um, and raise more crops that end up fattening those animals than relying on the, uh, the open range. In the South, as you know, population density is, is not as heavy, uh, not, as, not as dense. Uh, that's the case where many European immigrants by the 18th century are saying, listen, slavery is uh, 
is depressing wages. It's limiting opportunity for free people. And it's why many of the northern colonies looked good. And so the South doesn't see that kind of uh, population growth that the North does. And it enabled the open range, that low maintenance philosophy of hog husbandry to persist longer. So uh, the pressures are there both North and South, uh, but they're highly selective. So I talk about a a planter in uh, Virginia's Tidewater who struggles with keeping his hogs in and his neighbors end up suing him for damages uh, because he's not able to successfully make that transition from just pinning your fields to keep animals out to starting to keep your animals in. Uh, and there are lots and lots of conflicts with, with uh, amongst the Euro-American settlers about that. But once you start to keep those animals in, you really have to put a lot of labor into maintaining them. As I mentioned, hogs want out. They want, uh, if they're not getting everything they need or their curiosity isn't being satisfied, they want out. So it put a lot of pressure on farmers to spend more time and labor raising the crops to feed the hogs and actually doing the work of penning them, uh, repairing the fences, making sure that uh, certain animals get to breed with others, which is a very labor-intensive task uh, that often, uh, for those people involved, both spaying females and neutering the males, uh, but gradually uh, came to consist much more of castration, uh, focusing more on the males, which were relatively easier uh, to successfully uh, control their uh, genitals. So, that's a lot of that's a lot of territory, but that gets us to uh, a different different approach to raising hogs, in which uh, uh, those people have to work for it. Yeah, I was really surprised by the chapter uh, called "Pigs in the Urban Slop Bucket." Um, I have to tell you, it was a little bit like serendipity. Yesterday in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in Frick Park near my home, I saw three pigs on harnesses and leashes. Um, eating acorns in this public park. <laughs> uh, and I just never thought about pigs <laughs> existing in urban spaces, uh, much less being like beneficial parts of the urban ecosystem, as you describe in the book. Um, but like the free range rural pigs who forage for nuts until time to slaughter, urban pigs scavenge for garbage. Um, tell us that, about that story. What what happened to the urban pigs? They, they do, and it, that surprises many people, although, again, a lot of historians have talked about this. Catherine McNair's got a great book about uh, animals in New York, and there's a lot of new work coming out about it. Uh, but those animals perform a service function. Uh, one of the interesting things to me was in a, a city that relied heavily on uh, fishing, uh, there is a lot of waste from preparing those fish for, for market to either be dried uh, or to be sold uh, fresh in the marketplace. What do you do with all the fish guts? And that's a case where in many cases they're dumped into the harbor, but in many other cases, those pigs are available to clean up that mess. Now, we all know pigs make their own mess, uh, but in some ways, the service function that they're doing uh, has a transactional component, like all service functions, in which there's meat at the end of that pig's life. So some of those animals are free-ranging on their own. They're escapees. Uh, but many more of them 
uh, are kept in pens at a brewery to consume all the brewer's mash, uh, all that uh, all that byproduct of uh, the uh, the brewing industry. Uh, there are lots and lots of piggeries associated with dairies in which they're consuming byproducts there too. Uh, they're they're filling all sorts of niches. And one of the interesting ones is as as a hedge against economic bad times for people of very little means. So this is a case where you can have a pin uh, next to your house. You can have a pig there that you provide some slops for, the kind of kitchen waste, uh, provide that. The pig will probably come back uh, if you are feeding it on a regular basis. Uh, but that pig might be on its own. Foreign visitors love to talk about this. We, uh, Francis Trollope talked about it. Uh, Charles Dickens talked about it. The Russians talked about it. The German visitors talked about these animals just on the street. Uh, Charles Dickens uh, said, uh, take care of the pigs. And of course, he wasn't literally admonishing people to uh, provide food and shelter for pigs. He's telling them to watch out because they will come up and knock you over. Uh, they, according to many observers, were ill-mannered uh, was the language that they used. But they're, they're there. And in some cities that specialized in pork production, uh, like Cincinnati in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, uh, that's a case where seasonally you could see thousands of pigs on the street being transported and moved from through the town to the uh, packing houses, uh, to the pens from the railroad uh, that was being developed in the 1840s and 50s. Uh, but they're, they're everywhere. And you, you couldn't escape it in the 19th century American city for a long time. Well, so even after those urban pigs are kind of moved to the outside, they continue to be garbage eaters, right? Yes, that um, that lasts well throughout the uh, mid-20th century. Uh, a lot of reformers are able to successfully clamp down on those pigs and their owners and kind of clean up the city by removing them uh, or pushing them to the edges. But the demand for reducing waste certainly doesn't go away. So in many cities uh, on the edges and the growing suburbs of the late 19th and early 20th century, those are also homes to pigs. Uh, the garbage is able to be carted there uh, by horse and wagon or horse cart or ox cart, and then later transported there by a rail car. And I was surprised to learn that by the time of World War II, uh, in certain regions of the country, most cities had some sort of waste disposal that was a hog lot. One or more operations dedicated to taking the food waste of the hotel trade and the restaurant trade and even households to reduce it and get a get a saleable product at the end of it. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, maybe now is a good time to talk about um, odor <laughs> and that hogs smell bad um, and that that has a lot to do with where they end up in the geography. Yes, the old expression, you've probably heard it. Uh the city slicker comes to the country and say, my God, it smells horrible here. And the farmer says, it smells like money. You bet. Uh, is the old joke, but it was in many cases true because hogs were predictable, uh, relatively predictable moneymakers on many farms. But city and country, uh, it, it's tough to escape the fact that uh, the hog waste smells. Now, for the city, uh, the city garbage dumps, people are are actually fighting in the early 20th century and, and mid-20th century. Which smells worse? Is it the actual pigs and their manure, or is it the garbage itself that's being fed to the pigs? Uh, so they're, they're putting a little bit of a finer point on it. And the case that's made in some of those cities, Los Angeles is a good example, that we can tolerate the smell of the hogs, many thousands of hogs, but what's difficult to tolerate is the smell of the garbage that's fed to the hogs. Uh, so you you can agree to disagree with those people, but that was uh, that was an element of the debate uh, that happened in in numerous cities. But even in today's countryside, uh, people do fight about the odor, and there have been many many efforts by the hog industry to encourage research into how to reduce that inevitable byproduct of hog production. Uh, so it's been controlling the diet. It's been controlling how the the actual manure and feces is, is treated on the farm. Uh, there are many, many attempts to manage what so far no one has successfully been able to manage, which is the, the smell of money, if you can put it politely. <laughs> Uh, that's the case where in many parts uh, of the Midwest in the last generation or two, um, as the scale of hog production has ramped up, uh, many neighbors have found that their property values have declined due to the proximity of a large-scale hog operation. If it happens to be downwind, that is trouble. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of some of those technologies and, and things, we'll talk a little bit more about that in when we get to your science chapter. Uh, but the next chapter focuses on moving pigs to market. So the, the market, centers, market centers have changed uh, significantly over time in response to technologies and economic forces. So uh, what are some of those technologies or tools or innovations that have changed the way pigs move from farm to market to table? We've seen just about every transportation system applied to moving hogs, but the one that's often left out is the story of droving. And the great thing about hogs as, as a commodity was the fact that they could move to market under their own power. 
So for farmers who were raising corn, which was raised all across all across the continent, uh, even in northern climes where you think the growing season might be a little too short for corn, they've got some locally adapted varieties that can mature in 90 days. Uh, and even if they don't mature, they can still eat the green stuff of the corn. Uh, those animals can be driven to market. And the corn, which is bulky and heavy and for most of our history, relatively low cost, can be uh, fed to those animals and can be successfully uh, transformed into a high-dollar product. So driving hogs to market uh, started with the first markets and persisted into the 20th century. It's, there, there are numerous photographs of farmers driving their hogs, uh, sometimes multiple miles to get to the small town where they could be uh, loaded onto, uh, taken to a buyer and loaded onto to rail cars. So there are lots and lots of examples of driving hogs to market through blindings, blizzards, uh, horrible rain. And it just looks like uh, a, a very demanding job to keep those animals moving. Uh, but obviously rail, truck, those things become important. And the, the thing that I thought was interesting about uh, much of that story is considering those hogs not just as meat and lard, but also for some of their other uh, some of their other uses as well, which is uh, taking the the fat, the lard, for uh, illumination and for an industrial lubricant. Those things, uh, certainly in the days before petroleum products, uh, they had a relatively high value for candles and for lamp oil and also for greasing the wheels of America's machines. Yeah, you've already mentioned this a little bit, but the, the chapter ends with the discussion of the foreign and export market for pork um, in the present as well. So how have like international trade wars and agreements um, affected the market for pork products? The... United States was relatively slow to respond to some of the changing demand in Europe, in part because corn was so plentiful and so cheap uh, that it was tough to resist feeding it to animals. And the complaint of the part of the Europeans was that American pork was often too greasy, that American pork was too fatty. And American uh, pork packers were sensitive to it, but they didn't have a lot of great levers to pull to get farmers to change their behavior. Uh, that starts to change in the 20th century a little bit, but uh, we see numerous complaints about that and complaints of uh, the presence of the trichina parasite in American pork. Uh, becomes a source of a, a trade dispute in which there's actually uh, a prohibition on the importation of American pork in uh, Germany in the late uh, 19th century by uh, numerous other states where they say American pork is too prone to uh, have the trichina parasite. Now, the extent to which that was true is debatable. Uh, that's the case where uh, I argue that many of those nations were trying to engage in a bit of protectionism under the guise of protesting trichina. 
because the studies that came out didn't show quite the levels of uh, trichina infestation. Uh, and if you don't know, for those readers who maybe haven't uh, had it, trichina is that little parasite uh, that's passed by consuming raw or uncooked pork. And uh, no one wants trichina parasites. Many people don't display the symptoms, but those who do have a lot of intestinal cramping, uh, intestinal pain as those parasites uh, start to grow and are ultimately passed out of the body through the uh, gastrointestinal tract. It's not a great time. Uh, again, many people don't show the symptoms as well, but that's a case where American pork becomes contentious. Uh, those European nations want it, but they also want to protect their own industries. Uh, this is a case where uh, it, pork becomes a bit of a, a political football Again, pigskin, I'm very sorry to all listeners everywhere. Well, and that chapter ends with the story of Smithfield being purchased by uh, a Chinese company. Will you talk a little bit about that? One of the interesting things about uh, the export market is the role of China. And as incomes started to rise in late 20th century, early 21st century China, uh, the role of meat changed in the Chinese diet, and we start to see a demand for more uh, meat protein. So the Chinese were concerned about securing a, a regular supply of pork, but the World Trade Organization uh, had prohibited some of that. Uh, after there's a successful negotiation, a uh, resolution of that negotiation, uh, U.S. pork exports to China surge. And so in the early 21st century, the U.S. in fact becomes quite dependent on uh, exports, pork exports to China. Uh, China, in their search to secure that supply, ultimately acquired Smithfield, uh, Smithfield Foods, which is the United States' largest pork producer. So it's interesting to me that if an American-raised pig is raised under the umbrella of Smithfield Foods and processed, uh, is, it, is it an American pig at all? Is it, is it in fact, a Chinese pig? Uh, so that kind of question uh, is, is one that will, as the scale and scope of pork production uh, has risen, we'll, we'll probably see more of that. Yeah, so I grew up with um, the other white meat, that slogan, <laughs> and you cover that in the chapter called Making Bacon and White Meat, and you describe how American taste for pork um, and how it has fit into the diets of different groups over the time. Uh, I was most struck by how Americans' fears about fat uh, dramatically shaped how pigs are raised, um, and really the the how the animal is shaped, <laughs> right, from from beginning to end. So uh, tell us a little bit about how American consumers changed the industry. Yes, this is part of that story that uh, producers were relatively slow to respond to some of that uh, demand that consumers had for leaner meat. It was the Danish and British uh, demand for bacon that the U.S. really wasn't filling very well because the bacon was frankly too fatty. Uh, after World War II, however, the industry is able to start to move the dial on changing that pig to be a more lean animal and one that consumers will allegedly want. Uh, so 
we start to actually look at the carcass of these animals and say, well, what can we learn here? And we start to learn by cutting those carcasses longitudinally, uh, cutting them uh, through their through their girth. We start to see where the fat is on that carcass, and we start to say, how can we change the diet of those animals? How can we uh, change the genetics of those animals to get a leaner product? And what you describe as as the other white meat is kind of the culmination of that process in which. Uh, those pork producers are able to identify animals that are relatively lean compared to um, compared to their peers, and they're able to select for those animals and allow them to propagate. And the other ones, those other males, uh, are sent to the slaughterhouse, and they end up in sausage and all sorts of things. But this is the case where over about 25 to 30 years, we're able to increase the size of the loin, which is one of the most valuable cuts. We're able to shrink back fat, back fat from about two to three inches across the top of the animal to about a quarter of an inch. Uh, we're able to do that by managing the diet and the genetics of that animal. What is interesting about the other white meat is that for many consumers, it wasn't terribly satisfactory. Uh, the product for many consumers was too lean. What, what gives pork the flavor? Well, it tends to be not only the tissue itself, but also the fat that surrounds the tissue, the fat within the, the intramuscular fat, and it became very easy to overcook pork. And if you're of my generation, uh, came of age in the 70s, you might very well have pork chops with applesauce or some other sort of sauce because the pork was pretty dry and fairly flavorless, easy to overcook. And that was uh, an unanticipated consequence of that attempt to make leaner hogs, uh, which, which I find to be uh, one of the great stories of how in our attempt to avoid fat, because we are concerned about our weight, what did we do? Well, we substituted other foods that were very salty, very sweet, and also very fat, just not with animal fat. Yeah. So how did bacon become a luxury item in the 21st century? Uh, you start out by describing it as like the, the, the food most fit for the working class and the enslaved people. Uh, and then it becomes, you know, something luxurious. How did that happen? Bacon uh, was in the doldrums in the 1970s and 80s as, as we're trying to live with the consequences of that obsession with fat. Bacon is an easy thing to cut out if you're trying to uh, lower your cholesterol, right? The, the 70s, don't eat eggs, don't eat bacon, cut down on your red meat consumption. Uh, so the prices for bacon were, were low. One of the things that people started to do was add that bacon to fast food, which was experiencing a huge boom uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so you start to see bacon being layered onto burgers. And bacon uh, gets a bit of a rebirth in terms of its saleability because the largest consumers in the marketplace are the fast food restaurants. And 
when bacon becomes popular, uh, then the price starts to surge and people see more of it. People realize that that salty, fatty uh, taste is something they had been missing in their attempt to eliminate fat. Uh, And it becomes a bit of a nostalgia food that uh, people start to consume. It becomes something that's prized by gourmands, by the uh, chefs at the high dollar restaurants. And so you start to see things like bacon showing up um, in all sorts of dishes, not only at the fast food, low price point uh, of the market, but also at the high end of the market. And so bacon gets gets a rebirth. Uh, bacon becomes a bit of a cult, uh, a cult following with bacon festivals and TV shows about it. Bacon added to ice cream uh, and who knows what else. But bacon is in effect rehabilitated, even though people know that it's relatively fatty and that it's relatively salty. But there's, a, I think, a real reaction to that attempt to limit animal fats in our diet. Uh, and it, it's, it's been one of the, the great stories of pork consumption in, the, in recent decades. Is that also connected to the resurgence of heritage breeds of pork? Absolutely. There are multiple breeds that are, are touted for having excellent bacon. There, there's a lot of, uh, I think, provincial breed pride in there, but Berkshire producers argue that they have a great uh, cut of bacon that comes from the Berkshire breed of hogs. The Mangalitsas, it's a, it's a Hungarian breed. Those promoters claim that they have fantastic bacon. Uh, but yes, the reaction to the super lean pork has been heritage breeds that actually have fat. And so many consumers who can afford it will have the heritage pork, the pork like the one that we fixed by making lean augs, uh, that will now be the, uh, the highest dollar cut of pork is the heritage breed uh, and not the more uh, uh, greyhound looking uh, hog that we developed over the course of the 60s, 70s and 80s. Yeah, you caution early and often in the book that the story of pig farming in America is one of transcending limits, um, including some limits that maybe should be untranscended, right, or better left uncrossed. Um, In short, you write, the success of pigs, producers, and processors is not the whole story. So what's left out um, if we just talk about the successes? What are the sort of the downsides we need to talk about, too? No, that. That's the really the theme of the book is the extent to which producers and processors, uh, the industry, uh, scientists have gone to say, uh, listen, we've encountered this limit in consumption or we've encountered this limit in uh, what's what we can produce uh, economically. How can we how can we blow that up? and do it differently or more efficiently or bigger or better. And we do see a tremendous amount of attention on those successes, right? Food costs uh, relatively little in the United States compared to other parts of the world. And protein 
is a great example of uh, food that's relatively inexpensive for Americans. But there are a ton of externalities that have gone with that. There are lots and lots of risks that have gone with that. Uh, you know, one of which is labor. Uh, in our quest to make cheap meat, we have often uh, sacrificed human safety along the way. Uh, even though all of these firms uh, will work hard to make sure they're OSHA compliant, uh, setting that bar low from a regulatory perspective has been uh, a goal of the industry. Uh, fighting against regulation on uh, water quality and the discharge of manure uh, into groundwater and surface water. So we focused on the successes. We have cheap meat. We have bacon that I happen to find to be personally delicious. But we also have to recognize that there's a price to be paid for that. And we transcend limits uh, knowing that there are winners and losers every time we do that. That's a great American story in my, in my mind that uh, we've delivered on so much that has been promised, but by not fully addressing the whole picture, uh, I think we probably do ourselves a disservice uh, in terms of quality of life and what, uh, not only for, for ourselves, but also for future generations. Can I ask you what project you're working on next? I have a couple of projects uh, that I'm working on. One that I'm super excited about is uh, the role of uh, genetic modification in crop production, specifically corn production. So I have a couple of uh, couple of products that are, projects that are tied to the use of BT or Bacillus thuringiensis, uh, which makes plants resistant to the corn borer pest. And also in terms of uh, plant breeding and the, uh, the risks and rewards of, of plant breeding in, as it relates to corn production. So I, I'm interested in the life sciences. I'm interested in food and fiber. Uh, I'm, uh, I just, uh, it's been so rewarding to me to work on these issues and questions that I can't see stopping anytime soon. And what's your work like with the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada? This is a new post to me. It, uh, it's a, uh, a post in which I am the Alberta representative to this national group that assesses people, places, and events for national significance. In the U.S., the, the closest analog is the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, this is is the same, but different. Uh, it's different in the sense that uh, we're actually considering events and people on their own that are tied to a place, but not, not necessarily of a place. But the committee, uh, composed of representatives from the provinces and territories, meets to discuss the applications and determine if, in fact, this is a national story, uh, one that deserves commemoration through a large interpretive tablet that helps tell that story at a particular place and tries to invigorate and promote the uh, 
the study of history by recognizing the places and people and events that happened all around us. So I have enjoyed that immensely. Uh, the Parks Canada staff develops phenomenal dossiers on these people, places, and events that are a real treat to read. And uh, it is, uh, it's fun to bring an Alberta lens to that. It's fun to bring a food and fiber uh, and agricultural lens to that, as well as one of environment too. So uh, I've got a five-year post uh, to that board and uh, just started in June. So uh, I'm excited about continuing, continuing with that. Yeah, what fascinating and important work. Well, thanks, Carrie, and yeah. I appreciate I appreciate your work with the uh, with the blog. It's been exciting to uh, listen to some of the stories, and I look forward to to following you in the future. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, we have several podcasts and several hosts on this channel, uh, but it's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, today, we've been talking with J. L. Anderson about his new book, Capitalist Pigs. Pigs, Pork, and Power in America, published in 2019 by West Virginia University Press. Joe, thank you so much for talking to me today. I had a great time. Thanks, Carrie. The pleasure's mine.